All right, we're going to get... Thank you, Lord, for I know my Redeemer lives and one day will stand on the earth. Amen. That's true. Yep, that's one of the things he says. Little Job going there. All right, so uh, we're going we're gonna to do the first chapter today in the book, uh, Let God Be God. And, uh, but I, I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit as a preface to this um, about what I've discovered about this guy, Ray Stedman, who is the author of the book. Uh, born the same year as John Kennedy. So you can see, obviously, uh, he, if he were alive today, he'd be over 100 years old. Um, he's, uh, he was an incredibly uh, interesting guy because uh, his background was completely different than what I expected, uh, to be honest. Uh, what I expected was to hear about a guy that was... Uh, you know, kind of old school, um, hard to, you know, kind of prejudice in his, in his basic, because that's kind of what that, that kind of that group was all about and so forth. Um, and, uh, turns out, uh, Ray Stedman was none of those things. <laughs> uh, he was pastor in California and Pasadena. Um, and, uh, Served in the pulpit there for about 40 years, retired when he was 72, and died like a year later. Uh, so he retired because he was, he was ill. That was the only reason he left the pulpit. Um, he was uh, one of the early um, uh, kind of uh, pushers of the idea of integrated churches, which is very interesting to me. Uh, now, to put that in perspective, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the idea of integrated churches, uh, just anybody that's ever been in ministry knows that just was not, that was not happening. And so he was kind of one of those guys. He was, he was uh, kind of a, uh, a, you know, uh, a kind of a different kind of idea. The idea was, is that, you know, God loves the world, you know, for I came to save the world. That's, you know, John three sixteen, right? So I came into the world and the world knew me not. But, but the, the idea was, is that, he was uh, so so when I had that perspective, then as I'm reading the book, it actually had a different color. It really did. It had a different flavor, I should say. It's probably a better word. Uh, it had a different flavor. It uh, and so this question of why do we suffer is more than just this issue of you know the story of the uh, the kid who has you know this uh, uh, you know this brain tumor. Uh, it's, it's much more than that. I mean, there's a huge amount of suffering that, that goes on that has nothing to do with sickness. It has to do with who you are and where you stand in the pecking order, as it were, and so forth. And uh, so that kind of changed my, you know, my kind of the, my view a little bit of this guy. But the one thing that, that got me at the very beginning of this was that we had just finished the names of God. And of course, one of the names of God is Jehovah Rapha, which means uh, the Lord, our healer. And so the question of course is if the Lord, if he is called Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is our healer. Why didn't he heal anybody? I think that's a legit question. Why is it that everybody doesn't get healed? In fact, hardly anybody gets healed. That's the truth. I mean, it's a very, very rare and exceptional thing that you hear about somebody that has a remarkable 
uh, healing that actually is real. That that's beyond just um, what's the word, Maddie? Um, recovery. Yeah, beyond recovery. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. That's that's the right word. And uh, so, and and because people do recover. I mean, let's be honest. I mean that that. Uh, I've had a couple of weird things happen in my life. I had a tumor when I was eight years old in my face and I recovered from it. Okay. I don't know that I was healed necessarily. It was removed and I recovered from it. Um, you I know, was healed. Yeah. You, I think John, a good example. I had a, I had a definitive healing uh, moment, which actually I had two, which is really wild. Cause I was, uh, I was very apprehensive. At least, you know, the, the typical sensational type healings that you see in the West Church, but um, yeah, when I was when I was diagnosed with cancer back in 2019 with testicular cancer, the night I was diagnosed, I remember I was uh, I was super nauseated, point where I woke up and I, I was going to throw up, and I prayed and I I, uh, I was like, Lord, I just need show me you're in this with me, get rid of this nausea instantly went away. Mm. Uh, not society, it didn't go down, it was gone. And um, I actually woke my wife up to tell her, that's one. But second time, so when I went through cancer, you guys have an all of my story probably, but it was, you know, I used to be over here, Tom, I used to be a professional guitar player, like did the whole Nashville thing and, you know, toured with a major league artist and all that kind of thing. And I didn't really use that in the church. And so uh, while I was coming through cancer, I kind of started, I started meeting, hanging out with Amy Curtis and Clark, and Clark and I became really good friends. I started, well, I was committed when I was getting through this, I was like, I'm going to play with the church and use my talents to, save, uh, to serve you. And um, so one of the byproducts of chemo that I went through is neuropathy, and it can often be permanent. And so um, God had basically installed and instilled in me and led me to you know, I'm going to get you through this, but you are going to serve me. And there were all kinds of moments, and I'll, I'll keep the story short, but I had neuropathy in my fingertips. And my doctor basically had told me at that point it's probably permanent. And guys, I couldn't, like, open a can. I couldn't, like, touch car keys or, like, I, I couldn't touch a string. It literally felt like I was injecting a needle mm. into a... Uh, into my fingertips. So I was talking to Andy and uh, Clark about playing, and Andy was just like, you know, when you're ready, when you're ready, I'm like, man, I can't right now. I can't, I can't, I can't. And Clark would call me all the time, just to, you know, we were buddies, but he would call me looking for updates. On my fingers, I'm like, man, I can't even touch the thing. And um, I got down on my hands and knees one night. This is months and months and months after the team, after I stopped being long time I, it's probably three four months maybe five months and um I, I literally was hands and knees in tears praying god if you want me to fulfill this purpose i can't do it without you because i can't play and you know, i've asked him thank him. i was literally crying i was like i need you to heal my fingertips and the next day i woke up showered Went downstairs to, and when I lived in Stewart, picked up a guitar and it was gone. That's awesome. Like, didn't subside. <laughs> it was gone and it's never come back. Mm-hmm. After a doctor told me it's probably going to be permanent. Yeah, and, and it, it's that was, that was straight up God. 
Like, no exaggeration at all, fellas. But, but, the, but the interesting thing about that, John, and this is not to take anything away from that at all, is it's yeah. remarkable when you hear that. That is the remarkable thing. Not that the fact that, that people get healed in your case, obviously, I, and I knew about that, by the way, uh, that's why, yeah, I, you know, so I mean, I, when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Uh, so even before you use the story, because I know, I knew the story, but at the end of the day, John, the truth is, is it's so remarkable because it just doesn't happen that often. Right. That's why it's remarkable. So the question, yeah. so the real question that I think Ray Stedman puts out there is why do people suffer? That's the toughest question. It really is. Not do they suffer, that's obvious. But the question is why do they suffer? Is there a purpose behind it? Uh, Orlando, one of the things you didn't hear at the very beginning of this is I did some research on Ray Stedman turns out that you know he was a pastor as you as you may or may not be aware but they talk about at the beginning of the book he was a pastor out in california but one of the things that he was like one of the first guys to do was work in an integrated environment which was unheard of in the 50s 60s and 70s he was just like and and that was his whole thing and and he and part of the reason that he apparently wrote some of the things that he wrote um, and some of the things was because he understood the suffering that was caused because of no fault of a person just because they are who they are just because they're black or just because they're Hispanic or or whatever and uh, you know that's a it was just an interesting little twist that I had never I had known anything about and all of a sudden it put a different flavor as I said to the guys earlier put a different flavor on this book to me for me uh, and so on but but the question of why do we suffer? Uh, I have two friends right now that have uh, this same disease that he talked about of the kid uh, that uh, in the book, uh, this uh, uh, glioblastema. Uh, glioblastema is the nastiest tumor known to man. I'm completely convinced of it now. Um, and because it does so many weird things to you. Not only do you have this tumor, which is growing and can't get, can't get taken out, but it messes with certain parts of your brain and, and, and it, it just changes the person's personality. And, and I've seen that. Uh, Jeff Brooks is a, a very good friend of mine, has, has one of these, and he's just not the same dude anymore. Now, what's interesting is, is I think he's a better dude with the tumor, which is fascinating. Um, he's, uh, he's much more aware of stuff spiritually that he never was aware of before, which is, which is amazing to me. And of course, Lois Janzi, who is John Janzi's wife, uh, and those of you that don't know, uh, they have, they have decided to go back North to be with their children. Uh, Lois is probably not going to be around for much longer. It's, that's just a reality. This is a very aggressive, she has a very aggressive form of the disease and so uh, there's a high likelihood that she's probably not going to make it much more than six months or so. But, uh, but there is a, but again, I even saw it with her, uh, total change in her personality as a result of this tumor. Uh, and in her case, John would argue again for the good, which is, which is interesting uh, and, and so on. But 
at the, but the question is why, and both of these people, however, are in tremendous amounts of pain. They, their entire world right now is about pain management, uh, which, is, which, is, which is fascinating. Uh, I was uh, playing golf yesterday with a fellow, and his back is so bad that his greatest concern in life is that he is going to get addicted to to the to the pain management that he's taking. And so as a result, he he limits his pain management so that so that he can hopefully not get addicted. Um, and yet, all he can think about, like he said to me, in every waking hour, and sometimes even outside of waking hours, is the fact that if he turns just the wrong way, uh, he will not be able to move. So why is that? Uh, why is it? Uh, you know, and the question he asked in the book, which I thought is, is God indifferent towards suffering? Uh, does he care? Um, has he forgotten us? Has he turned his back? These are, these are amazingly difficult questions that, to be honest, no one ever asks, in my opinion, and, or maybe asks them enough. Uh, because there's an answer to that, go ahead. No, no, I, I was just going to say, you know, may, may I just quickly add, you know, and, and it just seems like, seems like oftentimes, you know, the people, who, a lot of a lot of people who suffer are the ones that they shouldn't be suffering, you know. Yeah. Those who contribute to society, those that are good people, and, you know, and, and at the end of the day, we're not here to judge mm-hmm. in this world, right? I mean, that's only God. But you, you oftentimes see how seemingly the the less or, or the less fortunate suffering more than those who 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 don't even acknowledge God, right? And 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 they do things, you know, we can probably think of many people, right? That that do things or we see things on TV and say, you know, those people, you know, and and, and you know they Albert, that's the book of Job. That that is you just outlined the book of Job. Because one of the things he said in the book, which I had never even considered before, I'd never heard this before, was that this is this is written like a play. So it has at the beginning, it has prose, which is, you know, just normal conversation. At the end, it's got prose, which is just normal conversation. And then in the middle, you got this, you know, um, scene in seven acts, basically. Uh, best I can count them. I've, I've kind of went through it and was trying to divvy it up. It's about seven acts in this, in this book, uh, in the middle, but, but effectively you have the first scene is, is God and Satan and Job. And then you got the three, the the three brothers, as I like to call them. Right. And then of course you got Elihu who comes sort of sliding, uh, sliding in at it, you know, towards the middle and so forth. And you got all these different things that are going on and their basic conclusion of all four of them really is that, Job, you must have done something really awful. You must have really screwed up. You must have some serious sin going on in your life. And Job's like, I don't think so. (laughs) You know, I mean, maybe I do. But honestly, I I don't know what I could have done. I mean, what did I do? I mean, I'm just... I'm just hanging out doing my thing. You know, I got my 8,000, you know, sheep and my, or however many sheep he had, five, I mean, he had a lot of sheep. He had a lot of oxen. He had a lot of donkey. You know, he was obviously a very, very successful uh, man. 
has these 10 kids, seven sons and three daughters, I think it was. And, uh, and then just God just sort of takes it all away. You know, first he takes away the oxen and then he takes away the donkeys. Oh, and... God didn't take it away. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, good point. Yeah, you caught me. That's good. That's good. So Satan, Satan takes away, and and yeah, he got permission. But but at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, he loses. But my point is, is that he loses all that. He loses that. You know, the only thing he doesn't lose is his wife, who says that he should curse God and die. God didn't take him away because he allowed Satan to take him. Okay, let me. Can I do something? Yeah, yeah, no, no. That's why this is all about. You were saying about the suffering part, and I was going back to Genesis, and I'm reading Genesis 16, mm-hmm. where uh, Sarah and Sarah and Hagar. Now Sarah was mistreating Hagar. Oh yeah, big time. Hagar reigned, and the angel of the Lord found Hagar and said, "Where are you going?" Then he said, "Go back and submit." to this suffering, to Hagar. God told Hagar to go back and submit to this suffering. Now, if that was any of us, what? Mm. God told her to go back, and she went. Yeah. And submitted. Yeah. And so when you when you say, well, why this? And you know, God knows what he's doing. Mm. Because he wouldn't say to ask God and say, hey, have you considered my... God said, have you considered Job? Yeah. The point of this whole entire book, as I see it, is to deal with a question that people never just want to deal with. Why? Why? And it's a big question because non-believers use it against believers. They say, why does your God treat you? How about believers use it against God? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say. But I mean, and argue, I mean, as far as arguing for... No, 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 I, 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 I hear you loud and clear. And that's what they always say. But why when is I, there suffering in the world? Right. Why does he treat let you... But, I, but I'm saying that this is not about unbelievers. This book is not about the it's unbeliever about question. This is about believers' questions. This is about guys who have got a relationship with God, and yet something really bad happens to them, and they start questioning themselves... Why is God allowing this? Man, I did everything I was supposed to do as though they earned it. You see, the point is, as Ray points out later in the book, you've read most of the book, right? Uh, I think you've read the whole thing by now, right? But I'm telling you, the one of the things he, you're gonna, we're going to hear later on the book is that there is a gospel message in, in Job, as I've said a thousand times, like I can't even tell you how many times I've said it as I go through Isaiah, is, is that... Grace is not new. Grace is not, what I mean by that is, grace is not New Testament. Amen. Grace has always been here. I mean, you go back early, or all the way back to Adam. Grace is what it's all about. Grace is what this book is all about. And in this book, this, this particular book of Job, I'm talking about now, is, is all about understanding that it is not by works. You do not have a relationship with God because you did the right thing. Because you helped enough people or because you did 
you know, that you had more good stuff than you had bad stuff when you tell, you know, tallied it up. Oh, I got more good stuff over. I got, I got more pluses than I do minuses, uh, you know, and, and so on. Don't work that way. No, God's, God's sitting here going, I don't sit here and add up your good stuff and your bad stuff. And he gets into that Job 38 through about 42-ish, somewhere in that range. Uh, I don't know the book that perfectly to, to know the exact chapters, but but that, that, that he gets into that when God comes into the picture. He comes into that whirlwind and he says, whoa, baby. <laughs> you know, where was you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where were you when I created the heavens? Oh, I don't know. You know, where you know where were you when I did this, and you you weren't doing any of that stuff. You know, as, as though you had you have some kind of control over over this. And and the one thing he said in the book that just got my attention, I actually circled it, yellowed it, <laughs> did whatever, and I and I highly recommend you do the same thing. Was this statement? He said, "God does not exist for man." Man exists for God. God does not exist for man. Man exists for God. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When I read that, I said, initially, well, duh. Until I thought about how I respond, how I act. Right? You know, when you ask God to damn things... Because we, 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 people do that all the time, right? When you ask God to damn things, what you're saying is, God, you exist for me. I want you to do what I want. That's what you're saying. You're saying, God, you exist for me. And God's sitting there going, what? Where were you? <laughs> right? When, when I created heaven. You know, where, you know. In the end, God rebukes that kind of thinking. That's, that's basically, but if you think about this play, you think of this as a play, it really changed my whole perspective on the book. When I thought of it as a play, as he talks about in the book, that this was kind of a thing. Now, we have no idea when Job lived. Most, most scholars believe that he lived back probably 4,000 years ago, sometime in the neighborhood of when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, somewhere in that range. Uh, he probably was not a descendant of Jacob, excuse me, of, uh, well, Jacob, but, but not a descendant of, uh, of Israel is what I meant. He's, he's not an Israelite necessarily. Uh, may or may not have even been a descendant of Abraham. Hard to say. Don't know. Uh, frankly, if they wanted us to know, they would have told us. It's kind of the way I look at it. So it's not important. Yeah, it's not important. Okay. All it is, is Satan picked him out of all the people he could have picked out. Satan picked out Job and said, oh, what about, what about Job? And so God says, well, Job's, yeah, you, you know, I, well, you, you, you put a hedge around him. I can't touch him. You know, and, and, and God said, well, I'll just take the hedge off. No problem. Think about that. Just think about that idea. I'll just take the hedge off. And it's just incredible. And yet, through all of this stuff that goes on, as we said at the very beginning of this, John actually said so well, 
is I know that my Redeemer liveth, and you know, in the end, he will stand upon the earth. I mean, that to me is one of the one of those prophetic statements in the entire Bible. One of the best, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just just incredible. I mean, you know, when I when I think about that, and 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 John, what's so interesting about it is it's right in the middle of the argument. I think it's like chapter nineteen, pretty sure. And uh, it is, yeah. It's right in the middle of the argument. It's right in the middle of this whole thing where, uh, where, well, actually, it's just after Elihu gets in there and so forth. But the fact is, is that these three dudes are are getting, you know, totally and completely carried away uh, and so forth. And it, to me, it's just one of those interesting conversations because Job not only loses all of his stuff, but then he gets struck with boils. Now, I've never had boils, and I don't ever want to have them. Now that I've heard about him, uh, but he gets struck with 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 boils. His wife gives up on God, gives up on Job. Sounds to me like, um, so that that verse. Just so everybody knows, if you haven't if you haven't recalled it, that it's nineteen twenty five, and Job's getting beat up on uh, by people. You know, must be sin that you have, and Job. He, he speaks of the Messiah. It's amazing. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. In the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, I will see God. In my flesh, I will see God. Yeah. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's wild. I, you know, and, and what, but what's really interesting, John, is that the one thing I love about this book is. Job sees his redeemer at the end. You know, I think it's uh, pretty sure it's Job 42. Uh, I don't remember the exact verse number, but in Job 42 it says, uh, and so Job died old and full of years. You know, he lived a full life, you know, and so forth. And that, And to me, that's one of those interesting little parodies, I guess, or whatever you want to call it towards the end of the book is that that's when we see God. That's when we really experience it. Uh, I think one of the other things that was interesting in the book that I had never thought about either is, you know, he, uh, God doubled all of his possessions. He doubled his livestock. He doubled his camels. He doubled, you know, all this kind of stuff. He, he gave him back 10 children. And it's been argued that why didn't he double his children? And I argue that he did double his children because his 10 children, even though they were dead, yet they live. Because I know that I will live in the end. Yeah, you know, so, so we have a picture of resurrection in this book, which we're going to talk about that when we get uh, you know, into it. Uh, there is so much to talk about uh, in this. Um, and and I, just, I just don't think you can do it until you consider the question about pain. And C.S. Lewis wrote a great book on pain. I don't know if you guys have ever read C.S. Lewis's... Uh, um, the Problem of Pain. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't want to call it... I don't want to call it a, a... John, I don't want to call it a, a book because I, I, the book... C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, is not a book. It's more of a treatise, uh, frankly. Yeah. Uh, it's... Um, it is a hard book to read. If you've ever read it, it is a really hard book to read. Unless you're just callous and don't give a flip. 
um, because he talks about the issues of pain from a perspective of obviously having experienced it. I don't know what he experienced. He doesn't even tell you. But clearly he experienced pain in his life in ways that we have never considered, or at least that I had never considered. Now, I read that book, unfortunately, when I was like 20-something years old, and I don't think I appreciate appreciated it as much then as I do now. Uh, he was a combat veteran from, from World War One. Yeah, I could He also have, was a... Uh, uh, yeah. He I, may have written that after his wife died. Yeah. Uh, he, did, he did write it. Oh, yeah, no, he, he talks about that in the book. Yeah, he wrote it after his wife died. Um, yeah, I, could, I could remember. It's been so long since I read it. Yeah. But here's what's interesting about Job. God does not answer the question. Doesn't answer the question. We do not know the question. Well, excuse me. We do know the question. We do not know the answer to that question. We do not know it. It's not revealed in the book of Job. Uh, and I think that's one of the things I remember the first time I studied the book of Job I remember the guy that was teaching Ray Cohen talked about that uh, and he didn't quite do it from the perspective of Stedman but that's okay it doesn't matter at the end of the day but, but he did talk about that issue of we don't know why God picked Job we just don't uh, there's nothing in there that says that God didn't understand it, but he does not answer the question of why. And uh, I, I just think it's uh, I just think it's a very interesting issue. But the one thing that 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 was talked about in the book, in this book, let God be God. And one of the things that Ray Cohen taught me years ago. So when I read it, it was amazing. I thought I was listening to a recording. Um, he said that this book is written um, with a backdrop, uh, with a, a kind of a backdrop, I think is the word that Stedman used, the backdrop of Satan's rebellion against God. That's what this book is all about. This book is all about understanding Satan's rebellion against God, that Satan really wanted to be God. That Satan wanted to have all of the power of God. He wanted to have more than that, though. He wanted all the glory of God. Totally. And when we studied Isaiah 14, we saw that, and, and it was just an amazing uh, picture. But what I wrote in the, uh, or excuse me, what he wrote in the book is that everything is a backdrop of Satan's rebellion, but God uh, does not see him. God does not see Satan. He does, in other words, he does not acknowledge Satan. You never see God acknowledging Satan's pride in the book. You never see that. Um, you, never, you never see God playing the game because that's a game, you know. Oh, yeah, you are. No, 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 you're not. I, no, no, no. He doesn't do that with Satan. He doesn't, he doesn't go in there and tell Satan, you know, Satan, you're an idiot. Get out of here. Doesn't do that, which is weird to me. Yeah, you know? He did. He, he chose Job. Yeah. And Job stuck at the same. <laughs> Basically. I mean, yeah. he did. He withstood the, 
battle. Yeah, he and did. He survived. And yeah. God rewarded him for it's it's really it's really interesting because if you think about Job, it's not the story of three. It's not the story of God and Job and Satan. It's not. It's really the story of two friends, Job and God. That's what this book is all about. It is a story of two friends. Satan is an antagonist in the you know in the in the in the book or in the play. That's all he is. He's an antagonist. And he loses. That's the other thing. There are there are there are hints of revelation of the of the book of the revelation in the book of Job, which is fascinating to me. There's uh there's identification of constellations, which is fascinating. Uh what we know about astronomy and so forth. He actually refers to it four thousand years ago. What? <laughs> you know, yeah. Um it's it to me is is just just an, an amazing thing because it is the story between two friends. It is a story between God and Job. Really, it's a story between God and everyone who believes. We are all Job at one at one point or another. That's the that's the idea. You know, it, it's really coming to mind to me. I think Satan is trying to tempt God. Yeah, I can see that. I, I can act, see that. To act in a way that brings saving without the pain in life. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I, I really can. Um, I, I, I really can because it, it really, that yeah, that, that actually makes a, a lot of sense. I want to read something from the book which I thought was really revealing to me anyway. Um, Well, that, that uh, thing that I just said about uh, that God does not exist for man, by the way, is in the middle of page 17 on your book, if you're curious. Uh, it says, ultimately, we must accept the fact that God does not exist for man, but man exists for God. We are God's instruments, and we exist to carry out his plans and purposes, which transcend our limited understanding. Which transcend our limited understanding. Very powerful. But I want to read this to you. It says, contrary... This is, a, this is actually a quote from uh, a British journalist by the name of Malcolm uh, Mudridge. Don't know who that is, uh, but he wrote a book called The 20th Century Testimony in 1978. And this is what he wrote. He said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seem especially uh, desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Now, I don't know how the guy can actually write that and be honest, okay, but he did. Indeed, he's British, though. You have to understand, this is the way British people think. I said, that was was an aside. (laughs) Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything that I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. Whether pursued or attained, in other words, if it, were, if it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial 
to be endurable. Half our problem now. And it reminded me, and the reason I, I wanted to read that, because I just thought that was so, especially that last line, and it is our problem today. I, I, I recently read a, uh, an article about, um, about the prison camps in, um, in Germany during the war, the, 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 uh, the uh, concentration camps. And one of the things that was remarkable to the people that were the guards and especially to the doctors that were there was that the incidence of suicide within the concentration camps was inconsequential to the point of almost not being counted. That's a quote, by the way, from the article. Inconsequential to the point of almost not being counted. These people did not commit suicide, which is fascinating to me because I can't think of anything more difficult, more horrible, more suffering than what the Jews experienced during the Holocaust. I'm sorry, I can't think of something. Now, I'm sure maybe there is. Okay, I'm, I'm sure maybe there is. I just don't know it in my existence, in my history. I don't. I remember uh, when I was in high school, when I was 17 years old, I took a class called Mahdi High, Modern European History. And one of the things that just blows me away now in retrospect is that we studied modern European history without talking about the Holocaust. I get chills thinking about it right now. We did not discuss the Holocaust. It was not part of the curriculum. It was as though it didn't exist. And we were studying modern European history. Now, by the way, I graduated in 1973. So this was a class that was in 1972-1973. Modern European history, by definition, was World War II. We talked a lot about World War II. I'm telling you. We talked a huge amount about World War II. We did not discuss, nor was it, was it even something that was brought up on the exam, anything about the Holocaust, nothing. Whoa. <laughs> long before Ron DeSantis. Um, yeah, it was good. Um, How sensitive, uh, the sensitivity of it, maybe? I mean, uh, I, I'm not... I'm not I, no, no, I, I, think, I think it's... I think that it was because they did not want it taught. Yeah, yeah the shame of it. Yeah. I don't think it was the shame of it. No, I don't think it was the shame of it, just the opposite. Do you, do you think it would... Well, no, no, I guess I mean, it's a shame that that portrays on all of us. Maybe. As, as we move on. Maybe. I, I don't know. I, I can't answer the question because I didn't write the curric- curriculum. and I, but, but the guy writing the curriculum had to know that the Holocaust occurred. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, just, it's just crazy to me that I took a course in modern European history as a senior in high school and did not learn about the Holocaust until about two years later when I was sitting under Ray Cohen's teaching. And he taught us about the Holocaust. Yeah. And, and I was you like... The one thing that we do learn from history, that we don't learn from history. I, I don't know, John. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just crazy. Anyhow, my point of this whole entire thing, I digress, I'm sorry. Uh, but the point of this whole entire thing is, is that this article talked about the fact that during the Holocaust, 
the incidence of suicide was inconsequential. It just never really occurred. However, today, the leading cause of death amongst teenagers is suicide. Greatest form of affluence. Uh, uh, it's just amazing to me. And by the way, the incidence of suicide amongst poor children is inconsequential. Did you know that? Most of the suicides that we see today amongst children, this is in the European slash Western world, we'll call it you know, United States, whatever, but primarily in the U.S. is what we're talking about, are among the affluent as we would define affluence. It has nothing to do with racial barriers either, which is fascinating. I thought for sure it would, it would show that there were more white children that were committing suicide. It's pretty much across the board uh, an affluent thing. So maybe there are more affluent white kids, so maybe that, that, that might adjust it. But at the end of the day, affluence is not helping us. The elimination of pain is not helping us. As, as, as I think Malcolm points out very, very well in this, I'm going, to listen, I'm going to read it again. Listen to what he says. In other words, if it, were, if it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo jumbo, I love that, the result would not be to make life delectable. Great word. Great word. Think about that choice of words. To make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. This guy can write, man. This is, this is what I call prose, okay? But at the end of the day, this is, this is what we're talking about. And this is the essence of the book. This is the essence of the book of Job, is what I'm trying to say. Is that suffering is part of the human condition. It's accurate to say Satan originated or ushered in pain and suffering. And that's true. I'm thinking. Because prior to the fall, and you don't see, there's not a lot written, you know, in detail, right, uh, about Adam and his life. But there's no evidence well and we also know to, to make your point maybe even right to make your point even more solid whatever not that's the wrong word but but uh, to kind of build on that point when Satan is out of the picture and has been cast into the pit into the abyss the great abyss at that point there is no pain and it's suffering alleviated. it's alleviated again so I've always seen it that Pain and suffering going on, it has been going on, is from Satan and his demonic forces. Right? <clears throat> One of the questions could be why does God allow it? Right. But he could alleviate it potentially. I mean, like that. Right. Well, that is the but that, that is the question. question. That is the question. Wow. And you, you know, and he, it really wasn't Satan who came up to God and Job and said, "Hey, this guy Job." It was really the other way around. Oh, yeah, it was the other way around. Have you considered my Correct. Servant, Job? Yeah. Right? And, and I'm, you know, God knew Job, obviously. Job knew God. And Satan knew Job. Right. And so he offered him up in that sense. But God all, already had a relationship with Job. That mm -hmm. relationship was intact. 
So pain and suffering, I've, always, I've never seen it from God, okay? I've always seen it as a result of Satan, his influences, and then, of course, our fallen nature, because we make horrible choices that leads to pain and suffering, right? The consequences of choices are real. But at the end of the day, the influence and the direction and all that is Satan and his demonic forces who exist around us to our oblivion, okay, largely, even in the church. Oh, yeah. Right? And yet we're in this uh, spiritual realm of existence, this dimensional existence that, you know, we're oblivious to. And yet he's 24-7 without vacation or sleep at the separating us from God. That's his sole mission. Keep us from God. Separate us, destroy us, just keep us from God. However influentially he does that. Right. It's interesting because we think about Romans 8.28. I think it's a verse that people love to quote, right? I mean, it really is. Eight to eighteen. Well, I was actually thinking of twenty six, but but you know, but but the, the point is, is that you know, Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. And but you know, it's interesting that that is the conclusion of eight twenty six, which says that. God speaks on behalf of us when we can't speak, when we can't even pray, when we can't, do, when we have no words. In other words, when the travail, when the pain—that's when we have no words. By the way, that's when we have no words. We have no words when the pain is so great we can't even speak, we can't even think. I've seen people in that kind of pain, and it is amazing to me. My father was in that kind of pain. My father was in so much pain towards the end of his existence, the last couple of days of his life that for him to speak was singularly impossible. And I mean impossible. He tried. He really did. He literally couldn't do it. And so when I think about Romans 8.28, I think of, always think about it, or try to think about it, in light of, of 8.26, where it says, oh, here, I'll read it to you. Who's got a Bible? You know, Don, the core question that I've always had is, who do you trust? Because in the pain and suffering that everybody will experience, bar none, nobody gets a pass. You said 826? 826. I'm reading, I you about the Romans 818 because I'm reading it. Likewise, the Spirit also helped our affirmative. We know not that we should pray for it. Wait a minute, wait, wait, say that real loud. We know not. No, no, no. Keep, go, go back up. Likewise, the Spirit also helped in our infirmity. Bingo. What's infirmity? It's it's affliction. It's a pain. It's that's a, that's what pain. That's that's the definition of pain, right? Infirmity. That's why they call it an infirmary. When they you know that's because it's a place where people suffer pain. Okay, but keep going. Um, for we know not what we should be praying for, as we ought to, but the Spirit itself make intercession for us with groaning which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts of no one in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknown, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's it. Wow. 
That's it. So, so, so the point is, is that when we're in infirmity, when we're in pain, or when we're when things are really at their most difficult, we can't even pray. Forget about forget about speaking. We can't even pray. And 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 I believe that's so true because we don't know even how to do it anymore. And so at that point, the Spirit of God just has to take over. No problem. Spirit of God will take over. And he'll intercede on our behalf. And, and Because that's why God loves us so much. Which, by the way, Randy, would speak to your point of this is not being caused by God. That would speak to your point. I mean, if it were caused by God, why would God have to enter? Why would the Spirit of God have to intercede? Well, if it's caused by God, you would blame God. Yeah, you would blame God, right? Exactly. There's no, there's nobody in their right mind that would would blame God, you know. And and and, but yet, there's the, and there's the sovereign thing. Okay. Well, and that's why he talks about that. It's, it's all predestined. Thing. Sorry, yeah, sovereign thing. But yeah, that's just the mystery of God. But he allows it to happen. He does, and that's. I mean, also, but it comes down to trust. He also gave his own son. Scripture says in 32, he, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Because the, the suffering of this present time is not to be compared with the glory right. that shall be revealed. Right. The suffering. Yeah. And Christ suffered for, and then the scripture said, Christ suffered, arm yourself likewise. Yeah. Get a mindset that this is part of your walk. Well, I think oh, that's and interesting. And I think that's the challenge. And it's our human limitations and, and understanding. But what he also said made a point too. He said, what I got out of what you just said is that the spirit make intercession for us because he's in there. Yeah. We cannot have that type of prayer if the spirit is not in there. Mm -hmm. That's why the people of the world and the saints of God did things differently. Because it's the spirit that makes the intercession for us. But if you ain't got no spirit, you got no intercession. Yeah. So the way God intercedes, we're going to end on this, but, but the way that God intercedes when he comes in the whirlwind is he starts asking a bunch of questions. Mm. They know the answer to. <laughs> well, not only did they not know the answer to, but no, I want I said, you to know the answer. Oh, yeah, he knew the answer. But, 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 but they didn't know the answer to, by the way, because they were all rhetorical. Truth be known. Mm -hmm. but, but, but I want you to think about the questions. I just wrote down a handful of them in my little notes here. First question was, where were you when I created the earth? Does that have anything to do with the pain they're at right now? Does that have anything to do with Job's pain at that moment? No. Second question you asked, have you seen the gates of death? Has, has that anything to do with what he's talking about right then and there? No, you're worried about what's going on right now. You're, you know, and, and God's sitting here going, but I've seen the gates of death. Can you, and I love this, can you loose Orion? That's an interest. That's the whole constellation. Thing. Can you loose Orion? Can you, can, you, can you change the stars, basically, is what he's saying. Can, can you change the rotation of the earth? Can you... Can you can you make something that's really important happen? Because if that happens, <laughs> lots of stuff happens, right? Okay, you're worried about this little stuff, and I'm sitting here going, 
The constellations being where they're at is a lot more important, evidently. Listen to what he says. He says, do you know the laws of heaven? Not of the heavens, but of heaven. Do you know the laws of heaven? You're worried about earth. You're worried about what's going on right here. And my perspective is, has nothing to do with what's here on earth. My perspective is what is going on up here. We are America's bunch. We, we are, man. Uh, you know, uh, this, is my, this is one of my favorite questions. Do you know what makes horses strong? Oh, that's a great question. Do you know what makes horses strong or why their manes are the way they are? Oh, there's a question. I mean, seriously, that's like the last question I would have ever asked. <laughs> but that's the question God asked. And then he, then he does this whole thing about Leviathan, you know, can you catch a Leviathan, which of course is just an indication of, of his one implication towards, towards Satan, you know, in this whole entire thing. And, and obviously there were more questions. I, I just wrote those, those, those were just ones that I just thought were pretty interesting, you know, in, in that particular section. And we'll talk about more when we get obviously towards the end of the book. He actually talks a lot about that at the end of the book, but, but just to sum it up, there is no answer to the question why that we, that we know as long as we're focused on the earth. As long as we're focused on these questions that God asks, then there is an answer, and that is that none of this matters. What really matters is where you're going, not where you're at. And that's one of the things we talked about when we did the series on heaven, right? It don't matter where you are, it's where you're going that matters. And, and too many of us focus on where we're at and not where we're going. And that, to me, is the heart of the book of Job. And that's where so many people, believers, are so focused on the here and now. Right. That when death does strike, and it does, oh, man, it can be devastating. I have a dear friend that goes to this church. Lovely man. I love him. Love him to death. But I'm telling you, when his wife passed away, and she was about 72, I think, Something like that. So she was not old, but she wasn't super young either. And she got cancer, and, and she passed away. And it destroyed him. Because his focus was not on where she was going, but where she had been, and that she's no longer with him and their family, and so on. And it... I don't know that he's fully recovered even to this day. And this has been more than a week. <laughs> you know, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we don't focus on these kind of questions. We focus on the other questions. Well, what would you do, man, to cause all this to happen? That's the, that's the Elihu question, right? I mean, that, that's, the, that's the question of the three dudes. Uh, not Elihu, I'm sorry, that's the wrong guy. But, but uh, um, I think that's Eliphaz that actually asked that question. But, but the fact is, is that the point is, is that we, we have, we have this, this insane obsession with the present. And it, and it, and it is. And with the past. And with the, oh my goodness, with the past, but, absolutely. But so I just want to throw in counterpoint. Yeah, go, go. I think that that question is answered with God's questions. 
Okay. The whole point of those questions, all of, every one of them is to point out our limited perspective. Man, that's good. Oh, right? so, that's excellent. So I love the, it. The whole thing is Job's suffering. What purpose, like in Job's perspective, what did it serve? No idea. But how many people have benefited from Job's suffering? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And was that God's plan? Mm-hmm. Right. Suffering was introduced into the world because God's plan was to let mankind have free will. Mm. And they chose poorly and introduced death. Right? And that that was God's plan. So then that ramification is there. So I would just pose as counterpoint that it really is. It's it's the it's the lack of our perspective to be able to see what God has planned, not just here in the present or for just me, but just throughout everything. Right. Which to your point is do you know the law of heaven? Right. Like 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 yeah, like this is a whole realm. I'm not even like I wouldn't even consider that my Marvel multi universe, you know. Like it's, it's, it's just a whole different thing. I, I just don't have the perspective for it. And I have to understand I'm here for God. God's not there for me. So everything and anything that happens within my life is part of his purpose. Right. It goes back to trust. Get, get what honest. do you trust? Yeah. Or who exactly. do you trust? Yeah. Go, I'm Steve. Reminded, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Steve. 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought as, and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I now... Now that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. That is a great way to end. Randy, pray for us, would you? Lord, thank you.